0: I am your host, Kelly, and today I'm going to be recording this episode by myself because Austin is working. Um, We've both just been super busy lately and trying to find time to actually sit down and record has become really hard because a lot of time when we have time to actually hang out, we just want to talk to each other and actually be with each other and not have to work essentially. So um, that, you know, is awesome. Pretty much always the reason. Um, If he's missing on an episode, that's why. So I'm just gonna go ahead and record this one by myself, but I know you guys will enjoy it either way. So, um, a few updates before we dive into today's episode. I have a really exciting thing I wanna share with you all, and that is that I have finished writing my first book. So, this book is actually going to be a part of a Mama Mystery series. And so the first installment of that series is going to be on crimes that were committed by women. So I've compiled 22 stories and um, I've gotten them all written in a creative story format and um, it'll make a great coffee table book. But this is going to be the first of many stories and books that I'm going to come out with. So um, one thing that's always been kind of a dream of mine is to become a published author. And I always thought that that would be... um, By sharing my personal story. I've always wanted to write a book on just like things that I've experienced in my life. And so that is coming. It's like a work in progress. Um, For those of you who don't know, I actually started writing my personal book like two or three years ago, um, right around when COVID started. And so I had about half of it written. Usually the goal for a novel or a manuscript is about 70 to 75,000 words. I had about 40 to 45,000 words written. And then I had an issue with my computer. Um, It was having trouble connecting to the internet. And it was something that I had to actually take into a shop to get fixed. They had to like replace a part on it. So I took it to this place in Kansas City where this guy, you know, worked on computers. It wasn't like an Apple-affiliated store, although they did work on Apple products. That should have been my first red flag, honestly. But I dropped my computer off, and then it was in like January or February, so we had a ton of really bad weather and ice storms, so I avoided driving down to Kansas City because that's like an hour drive, and I mean, who wants to drive on ice? So... Um, anyway, by the time I did get back down there, it had been about a month and I got down there and asked, you know, if I could get my computer back. And he said that he sold it because I didn't pick it up in time. And I, I thought, what do you mean in time? I didn't know there was even a deadline. And he said, it's in the email that we send out to everyone. Well, at the time, he sent out one email that was just a confirmation that I had dropped my computer off, and then the other email was like all the fine print and red tape. And of course, at the bottom of that email was something about needing to pick it up within a week or two weeks or something like that. I never got a phone call. I never got a follow-up email, nothing, no warning that he was going to sell my computer. Um, So it was really devastating. Um, I obviously learned my lesson from that, which is always read the fine print, always communicate. It was it was devastating, though. And so I stopped writing my book um, indefinitely after that. I just I never got back to it. And then um, it wasn't until I had a conversation with one of my best friends, Ashley, who motivated me to restart that project because she felt like it was a story that deserved to be told. Um, and so just from that conversation, having a best friend in my corner to cheer me on and push me to do something that made me a little uncomfortable but would make me better in the end and potentially help other people, um, that's pretty much all I needed to you know, relight that flame. So... The first book that's coming out is Wicked Women. That's my true crime stories. It's all going to be just objectively written about these crimes. And then the next book I plan on coming out with is going to be my personal story based on my life experiences. And so I will be sure to update you all as those books come out. The first book, Wicked Women, is going to be out in the spring. Um, And then the The following book, I don't know, but it's on your radar. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to sharing those with you. And I would not have been in a place to even write a book or publish a book or even sell a book if it weren't for this podcast. So I'm just so grateful for all of our listeners, our dedicated listeners who tune in regularly, who binge all of our episodes. You guys mean so much to me. It It's truly made so many of my dreams come true. And I'm not saying that lightly. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. So anyway, now that I've gotten that out of the way, we are going to dive into today's episode, which is on Taylor Wright. Today's story takes place in Pensacola, Florida, located in the western Florida panhandle about an hour west of Destin. Pensacola is known for its charm, its breathtaking beaches, and its relaxed atmosphere. They're home to the National Naval Aviation Museum, which is where the world-famous Blue Angels are based, and I feel like a lot of people travel to like, that part of Florida just for vacation or maybe during like their retirement years, but Taylor Wright moved to Pensacola from South Carolina after getting a divorce from her husband, Jeff. Together, they share a son, but after they split, they became embroiled in a bitter custody battle. Once Taylor moved to Pensacola, she really wanted to pave a new path for her life, and she got on some dating apps and actually met a woman, Cassandra Waller. The two had a connection, so they started dating, and their relationship progressed quickly with Cassandra offering to move Taylor into her house and both saying that they loved each other. I mean, it, it went by pretty fast, but as Cassandra got to know Taylor better, she started finding out some things about Taylor that maybe she didn't love as much. She caught Taylor doing drugs and also caught her having relations with other women. Despite that, the two tried to work through those obstacles. At some point in the midst of her custody battle with her ex-husband, Taylor also withdrew $100,000 from an account that she shared with her ex, and then she gave portions of that money to her friends for safekeeping with the intent to get it all back after the divorce was finalized. One of the friends that she entrusted with her money was a girl named Ashley MacArthur. She gave Ashley a big lump sum of cash. And then Ashley put that money in a safety deposit box. But when Taylor's ex found out that the money was missing, he took Taylor to court and the court ordered her to put the money back. So Taylor asked Ashley to get the money back to her. And the two of them made plans to actually go to the bank together on September 8th of 2017. So on that day, Ashley called Taylor's girlfriend Cassandra and told her that they were going to ride horses at her family's farm in East Milton because Taylor was really struggling emotionally with the divorce and the court proceedings. And Ashley just thought that she could help get her mind off things. Cassandra was a little concerned because she didn't make any mention of going to the bank to get the money. And Cassandra knew how serious this issue was because if Taylor didn't return the money, she was gonna go to jail. So Cassandra starts texting Taylor about it, but Taylor ignored her for hours before finally responding with, quote, I'll call you later. I'm not angry with you and I should have called, but I just need to think. I'm trying to get my life organized and on track, end quote. But Cassandra was angry. Given Taylor's history of using drugs and cheating on Cassandra, she felt like this was Taylor going off the deep end again and being unfaithful. So Cassandra told her not to come home to her house, that she didn't think they could be together anymore, and that Taylor had some serious issues she needed to work out. She responded with her emotions and was understandably frustrated and upset, but Taylor didn't respond and she never did come home that night or the next day or the day after that. So Cassandra's anger shifted then to worry, and she began pleading with Taylor to just come back. They could work through this together, but after getting no response from Taylor, Cassandra got really worried and filed a missing persons report. Investigators started looking at Taylor's ex, Jeff, as an obvious potential suspect, considering their contentious divorce. They started looking at Cassandra as well, since the two were in a tumultuous relationship, and they also brought Ashley in and asked about their day together on September 8th. Cassandra told police that Taylor told her she was going to Wells Fargo with Ashley to withdraw the funds that she had to return to the bank. But when police asked Ashley about going to Wells Fargo, she told them she never had an account there, no safety deposit box, nothing. Ashley told investigators that on the day they went to her family's farm, she picked Taylor up and they stopped at a gas station before heading to Milton. Ashley got a fountain drink and Taylor wanted a beer, despite it being about 1030 in the morning. But you can see Ashley on surveillance buying both of those drinks. She said they went to the farm, hung out while Taylor kind of just blew off some steam, and then they left to go back to Ashley's house. And once they got to Ashley's house, she said that Taylor ordered an ordered an Uber and left. And after that, she never saw her again. So Taylor at the time was 33 years old. She studied criminal law at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And she worked at the Jacksonville Police Department from 2008 to 2009, and then again from 2012 to 2013. When police started fact-checking Ashley's recollection of events, they found some discrepancies in her story. Ashley said that Taylor ordered an Uber, but according to Taylor's Uber account, it hadn't been used in months. So who was lying? Was it Ashley or was it Taylor? Meanwhile, Cassandra spent every single day looking for Taylor. She called area hospitals. She called local jails. She tapped into any resources she could to get some sort of lead on where Taylor was. Ashley also worked closely with investigators trying to find Taylor. She called them regularly, asking for any updates on the case and offering insight as to where she could be. Ashley told them that she thought that Taylor was back on cocaine and that she'd probably be in a shady area of town. After a month went by with no sign from Taylor, Cassandra took to Facebook to plead for anyone to come forward with information regarding Taylor's disappearance. She wrote, quote, Missing one month today. Please help find Taylor Wright. Taylor would not have gone missing on her own accord like this. If she did, we just need someone to notify us that she is safe. That is all. She is a loving mother, a great friend to many, someone who would give the shirt off her back to you, and someone I care about more than words can ever describe. We will not stop looking for her. Any help in sharing the missing person poster or keeping an eye out slash notifying someone if you see her is much appreciated." By the time investigators got a hold of Ashley's cell phone records, they were able to see her locations on the day that she was with Taylor. Ashley told them that they went to East Milton to her family's farm, but the pings from her cell phone did not reflect that. Rather, it showed her location on Britt Road that day. Britt is actually Ashley's maiden name, and she owned property on that road with her family. They also began pulling even more surveillance footage that included Ashley. Footage of Ashley depositing checks from Taylor at Wells Fargo ATMs. But the checks, although they had Taylor's name on the dotted line, were not actually signed by Taylor. At this point, police are highly suspicious of Ashley, and she is now at the top of their list. So they obtained search warrants for Ashley's property, including her work. And while those search warrants were being executed, they brought her in for questioning. At this point, she had no idea they were searching her property. Once they were in the interrogation room, they confronted her with the information about her cell phone records and where they pinged versus where she said she was. They asked her why she lied about going to Milton when she was actually at a farm on Brit Road. She told them she didn't think it was pertinent to their investigation and that Taylor asked her not to say anything about going there, but the investigators were not buying it and they began applying the pressure. They confessed to her that a search warrant was being executed and that if Taylor's body was at either of those farms, they were going to find her. And once she heard that, she told them she needed an attorney, which effectively ended the interview, and without any other physical evidence against her, she was allowed to leave the station. The search was still going on when she left, but only two hours later, Taylor's remains were found on the Britt Road property. Her remains had been reduced to bones, and clearly you could see a bullet hole in her skull. She'd been buried in a shallow grave and then covered in concrete and potting soil. Ashley was immediately arrested and charged with first-degree murder, to which she pleaded not guilty. The trial began in August of 2019. During her trial, the prosecution laid out the motive, means, and opportunity. The motive was $34,000 that Taylor had given Ashley to keep safe in the form of a cashier's check. But instead of keeping this check in a safety deposit box, Ashley forged Taylor's signature on the check and deposited the check into her own personal account and then spent the money. It was revealed that Ashley had been cheating on her husband with a man named Bra- Brandon Beatty, and she used Taylor's money to buy this boyfriend multiple things, including a boat. And the bank account that Ashley shared with her husband, Zach, had been overdrawn for quite a while before she deposited the $34,000. So these financial troubles were now, at least temporarily, relieved by this $34,000. But when Taylor came to Ashley asking for the money back, Ashley just kept stringing her along. And it was evident by Taylor's text messages to Ashley that she needed the money back and was losing faith that Ashley was going to return it. Her text seemed stressed and worried, telling her that they only had a couple hours before the bank closed and to please not be late. When they did meet up, there was surveillance footage of Ashley buying a fountain drink and a beer that was allegedly for Taylor. But one of Ashley's friends testified that the night before Taylor went missing, Ashley was in a strip club talking with a friend after she had just bought some cocaine. She admitted to this friend that she was going to put cocaine in Taylor's beer to try to overdose her. But another friend, who also testified, said that Ashley told her that Taylor tried a sip of the beer and then spit it out because it tasted sour. At some point during their time together, Ashley drove Taylor to her aunt's farm off Britt Road, and the cell phone pings proved that. But later in the night, when Cassandra received that text from Taylor saying she wasn't angry and just needed to get her life organized, it is more likely that Ashley wrote that text on Taylor's phone to deflect the reality that Taylor was actually dead at this point. The day after the murder, Ashley was seen on surveillance footage at a Home Depot purchasing concrete and potting soil, which is exactly what was found on top of Taylor's body when she was finally discovered a month later. In addition to this, the state attorney argued that Ashley had once worked as a crime scene technician, giving her a unique insight as to what investigators would be looking for. Assistant state attorney Bridget Jensen also presented cell phone tower data showing that on September 9th, the day after Taylor's disappearance and the same day that Ashley bought the concrete and potting soil, Taylor's cell phone pinged off a tower in Alabama. That cell phone tower was located close to a wedding Ashley attended that same day, indicating that she had Taylor's cell phone with her. Ashley's defense team argued that all of this evidence was just circumstantial and none of it was concrete physical evidence. Speaking of concrete, one of their biggest arguments was that the concrete she purchased at Home Depot didn't match the kind of concrete found on top of Taylor's shallow grave. A store clerk for Home Depot testified that the concrete she bought was a fine dust type of concrete, but that the concrete found at the grave was rocky, textured, and contained pebbles in it. The defense also argued that Ashley was just a small woman with a previous back injury who couldn't lift heavy things, especially a 50-pound bag of concrete, and even more especially, a dead body and the murder weapon was never found as the bullet didn't match any of the firearms Ashley owned. The defense also quoted the medical examiner's report highlighting that the medical examiner couldn't give an exact date of death. So who's to say Taylor didn't run off and wind up dead at someone else's hands and then end up buried on Ashley's property by a stranger? (laughs) See how far fetched that is? Now, despite this case being circumstantial, the jury had enough common sense to put the pieces of this puzzle together. And on August 30th of 2019, the jury found Ashley MacArthur guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. She was sentenced to life in prison with a mandatory minimum of 25 years. So she will be eligible for parole when she turns 67, but remember that doesn't mean parole will be granted. Ashley tried to appeal the conviction, stating that a photograph of her holding a shotgun was accidentally flashed to the jury for one or two seconds, and that this could have prejudiced them against her. She also argued in her appeal that the court allowed certain evidence to be presented when they shouldn't have, evidence like cell phone records, Taylor's text messages, and statements that she made to investigators. But why that would be inadmissible isn't clear to me. In April of 2021, the appellate court upheld her conviction and denied her appeal. But that wouldn't be the end of Ashley MacArthur's story. Prior to this murder trial, she was charged with arson, racketeering, and fraud in March of 2019, after it was discovered that she'd been embezzling money from her family's business, Pensacola Automatic Amusement. This company serviced entertainment machines and jukeboxes for 40 years in the Pensacola area, and over the years, she had been embezzling thousands of dollars from at least two of these local businesses, but on the day she was supposed to meet with those business owners about the missing money, the Pensacola Automatic Amusement Building burned down. She was convicted of racketeering and fraud, but not arson, and she was sentenced to seven years in prison plus three years of probation for that crime. Now, I'm going to add this little tidbit, and some of you probably already know what this word means, but I wasn't 100% clear on what racketeering meant. I had always heard it, but to be honest, it always made me think of like racquetball. I don't know why. I just thought I've always thought of it as like a a sport. That sounds so stupid. I can't believe I'm even admitting that. But racketeering, if you don't know... (laughs) It is a federal crime, typically categorized as a white-collar crime, that involves the use of an illegal enterprise to commit fraud or other crimes. It's typically associated with organized crime and can include a wide range of activities from narcotics trafficking to money laundering or, in this case, embezzling. So that is what it means. It's essentially stealing or, I don't know, just risky illegal behavior. (laughs) But, you know, at the end of the day, I really do think that these other crimes she was also convicted of just speak to her character and what she was really capable of doing. She was capable of hurting anyone, anyone to get what she wanted. And she did it to multiple people in two different cases um, that we know of, at least. So, anyway, I think she's exactly where she needs to be. I feel really sad for Cassandra because she was really put through the ringer during this entire ordeal. They brought her in for questioning, and they uh, at first had their sights set on her. And as investigators, you know, that's your job—you have to vet everybody and rule out everybody. But the way to do that is often very intimidating and can be traumatic. And i i believe it was that for Cassandra. So I feel bad for her for her because she, you know, obviously was another victim in this, but at the end of the day, I think that justice was served here. Um, and that, you know, Ashley's where she needs to be. So that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. I appreciate you all so much. We will see you back next week with a brand new episode of mama mystery featuring Austin, hopefully by my side. So with that, have a great weekend, mama mystery out.